Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey guys, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Jan Pritzker, who is a founder and CTO of a company called Reverb.com. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, You've been in tech since the mid 1990s, Uh, have been through multiple acquisitions as both an engineer and as a founder. Uh, Most recently, as mentioned, you founded a company called Reverb.com, which was a wild success. It is a marketplace for musical instruments that was the top 500 most trafficked websites in the US. Uh, It was eventually acquired last year by Etsy for close to 300 million in cash. Uh, How did you get into tech? Yeah, so I grew up uh, coding as a kid. Uh, I was lucky enough. Um, I moved here to the United States from the Soviet Union when I was about seven years old. And uh, my dad, very quickly, even though we were very poor, he got me a computer, uh, my first Commodore 64. And uh, I grew up essentially you know, playing games and, and learning code. And by the time I got to junior high and high school, I had already started coding. And uh, it seemed like a very natural path for me. My dad was also a, an, a software engineer, um, which he kind of pivoted to because he was a civil engineer in Russia, um, but because getting a civil engineering degree without really knowing English here was so tough, he ended up sort of pivoting to computer programming. And um, so, yeah, I, I grew up doing that and watching him do that. And um, by the time I was in college, I was working for a bunch of on-campus companies and, and getting uh, into early web uh, kind of technology. And uh, when I left, uh, my, my first uh, startup experience was in the early 2000s with um, Unix, which was an online university. And when I first uh, got there, I just was so bitten by this like startup bug. I was so excited to to be in a place where everybody was really uh, mission oriented. You know, everybody was there for a reason. They they believed in the thing they were building. And um, after that, I just couldn't stop doing startups. I just decided that like I wanted to have a career in startups. I was not interested in you know working for a big company. Uh, I turned down offers from like Google. I had interviewed with Amazon, and I was just like, this is not. Yeah, this is not for me. I, I really want to be at the uh, ground floor of something. I didn't care what it was as long as I was there in the beginning and helped build something from from the ground, uh, from scratch. And that was really the thing that excited me about startups. And looking back at, at it, obviously, it was the right decision for you. Uh, tell us about the founding story of Reverb. How did you meet David Colt? How did you guys get started? Yeah, so when Reverb um, was born, I was living in San Francisco at the time. I had moved out in, to SF in 2009 uh, just for the reason of uh, I was just wanting to to see what that environment was like. I always wanted to live in San Francisco as a kid and uh, moved out there and was working on startups out there. And um, I was involved in a startup out there called Crowdcast, which was uh, a prediction market. And uh, Crowdcast had just gotten acquired uh, at the end of 2012. And the company that acquired it was kind of a bigger, um, you know, it was like 500 employees kind of thing. It was just too big for me. It didn't feel like a startup anymore. And I started looking at my next opportunity. And I was just also looking to go back to Chicago because I, um, I was dating my wife at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, we were remote dating and I wanted to move back to Chicago, which is where she was. And so I started looking around at opportunities in Chicago and I saw this job posting for uh, this online marketplace idea for, for guitars uh, and, and musical instruments, which was David's post. I didn't know who David was or anything. 
Um, and I, I reached out and I said, this sounds interesting. I want to, I want to help you build this. And I came to Chicago and kind of met David. And this was just, you know, the first of our conversations, we, we started talking over um, Skype and then over, uh, you know, flying back and forth. And I realized that this was really a great idea to, um, to try to build uh, basically an Etsy for guitars, right. And, and for drums, because at the time people were selling musical instruments, um, just on eBay or Craigslist and eBay was horrible. Everybody, I don't think anybody likes eBay. <laughs> the user experience is not good. The customer service is not good. The fees are too high. Uh, and uh, Craigslist was very shady, right? You don't know who you're meeting, where, you know, if you're carrying expensive equipment with you. It was clear that there was a problem to be solved there. And so uh, I met up with David and I, I convinced him to really just come on board as a co-founder and, and CTO. I don't think he was looking for me. He was looking for an engineer. Uh, because he thought he had like everything figured out, <laughs> and I kind of convinced him like, "Hey, you need something a little bit more than that, um, and I could be your guy." And um, you know, we, he had a great asset behind him, which was the a guitar store. He had his own guitar store called the Chicago Music Exchange. So uh, that was one of the things that really attracted me to this idea. Is yeah, anybody could build an online marketplace, right? It's just I mean, writing software is not the hard part. You really also need to bring in uh, liquidity to a marketplace, which is, you know, people actually like the appearance of activity, people buying and selling. And um, having David with that asset was a huge, uh, huge part of our business to be able to kind of use that store to bootstrap the marketplace. So really, what was it that made you want to join David? I mean, David comes from a pretty successful entrepreneurial background. He sold his last company uh, for a billion dollars. So pretty successful is probably a mm, bit of yes. an <laughs> understatement. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the idea itself, I mean, it, like, like you mentioned, it makes sense on paper. So what, what was, was, it, was it the kind of the opportunity that you saw that this is, are, are you a musician yourself? Like, what? Yeah, you- yeah. So I've, um, I've played guitar all my life, uh, pretty much since high school. And uh, I dabble in piano nowadays. Uh, music's always been a big part of my life. And I, you know, after I left my San Francisco startup, uh, Crowdcast, that I got and acquired, I basically felt like I'd been too long in the space of kind of enterprise software, you know, prediction markets. Prior to that, I did a cloud startup. I wanted to do something that I could, I could never explain to people what I worked on. Like, if you go to your friends and say, I'm working on a prediction market, like nobody cares, right? No, nobody's interested in that. Uh, I wanted to be proud of something and, and make uh, a difference in the world. And I felt like bringing music to people was a big deal. Um, it aligned with my interests, but it also was something really positive for the world. And um, it's something I could really you know, tell my friends about. Like I, I help people get their first instrument. This is really cool, right? Um, and so when I heard about this uh, concept, I, it just seemed like the right thing to be working on. Uh, and obviously, yeah, David had a lot of success, but it wasn't really that that sold me on him. Uh, it was really his passion. You know, when we met, um, <laughs> I walked into his office and what he was doing, he was trying to learn to code <laughs> at the time. He was, he was learning uh, Ruby on Rails. And uh, we just sat for like a day and I was teaching him how to code and we were like working together. Um, and I saw that he had this passion for really rolling up his sleeves and getting things done, which, uh, which really sold me on, on working with him. What was the initial value prop that you guys were going after? Was it just let's, let's take what eBay and Craigslist are doing, but provide a much better customer experience or was there something more to it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not only just a good customer experience, it's also a fair pricing. Yeah, one thing that we know about instruments, musical instruments and musicians in general, is they tend not to be people with a lot of money. Uh, musicians are very uh, scrappy and they need to have fair pricing on their instruments. And um, there's another aspect of, uh, of mu- um, musical instruments, which is interesting, which is the sentimentality. 
so somebody will buy a guitar for $1,000. And um, even though they could sell it for like, you know, 900, they just won't do it because they felt like, you know, they've invested this money and now it's like their baby and it's hanging on their wall and they're looking at it every day. People are just not willing to part with their instruments. And um, when you have something like eBay, which takes a 10% cut of your sales on top of that, it becomes just really untapping, play with it and then resell it uh, because you're losing so much money on these, on these sales. So um, it was the recognition of that, right? And, and that people uh, have the sense mentality. And so the, the site has to be very, uh, it has to understand you as a musician, right? Um, that was Reverse Value Proposition is that when you called into our customer support, it wasn't that you would get somebody offshore that was just going to help you with your technical issues. It was somebody who really, who knew your instrument, somebody who had played that same guitar, somebody who grew up playing that same synth, right? Um, somebody who had touched those instruments and knew what it meant to you. So that when you called in and said, hey, I'm having trouble with my sale and this is what's going on, they like sympathize with you. Uh, this was a big deal for us. And um, having lower fees enabled us to also close the, the pricing spread so that people were, you know, if they bought that thing for a thousand, they'd be okay with letting it go for 900 because they, I mean, we weren't taking 10% from them on that sale. Um, and that helped us have more fair pricing. And um, we also developed a price guide, which was a, a way to essentially bring transparency of pricing into the industry so that people knew what their instruments were worth and what they could get for them. And they knew how to price because uh, that was a big challenge for musicians. They're not salespeople. They, they don't know how to price their instruments. And um, that whole fear around pricing is why people don't sell stuff. It's, it's just lying around in their basement and collecting dust. So yeah, by bringing together really good customer service and fair pricing, we've solved a big problem for musicians, which is how do you part with that thing that you love so much uh, and still feel like you got a good deal? So and go on to the next thing. <laughs> I, I read that you guys, um, you about like over 80% of the employees that you guys had were musicians. And I found that very interesting. And kind of like you mentioned, the, the, the customer service example is that when you were speaking, mm-hmm. when somebody called in, they were not speaking with somebody that was reading off a script or was going, that they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. They were, pe- they were speaking with people that uh, were probably musicians and kind of could really sympathize exactly. with, the, with the problem. And you'd get had. routed to somebody, you know, you'd be routed to people who knew your specific instruments. So if you called in about a flute, you'd get routed to our band and orchestra people who really understood that. And, um, you know, could really talk to you on that level. So were you guys filtering for these kind of people? Like, did, did you hire specifically for musicians? Like, was that a part of the interview question? Or, or was that kind of the nature of the business and attracted these kind of people? Um, we didn't discriminate in that sense. Like, we didn't really, if somebody was really, really good at their job, it's not like we said, okay, you have to be a musician. Um, I think we attracted musicians just because musicians want to work for a music company. And uh, it was almost like a snowball effect because once you got one person, then all of a sudden they're going to their bandmates and they're like, hey guys, I'm doing a customer service reverb and it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I spend all day talking about music. It's like a musician's dream job to talk about gear all day, right? Um, so the word spread pretty quickly and we have a lot of bands like at Reverb that are, uh, you know, people who we hired that then hired their bandmates or bands that formed from within Reverb, right? So uh, musicians are definitely a, an, like a click and, and the, that word spreads very, very well. So I think it was both, um, you know, we definitely placed value in people having musical experience, especially on customer service to be able to talk the talk. Um, but, you know, in the, for example, in engineering, it's probably a smaller proportion of people that were uh, musicians just because uh, that wasn't so critical to their job. Uh, but the ones that were, uh, they, they, of course, sympathized with what was going on in the site a lot better. Um, and what we, do, what we did uh, to help everybody who wasn't a musician was we actually had uh, an internal contest where people had to buy and sell pedals on Reverb so they were forced to use the site and to understand what the process is for a regular customer. 
And through that process, they themselves had the experience of touching the gear and you know, photographing it and listing it for sale and understanding what it was about and why people cared about it so much, why people wanted to buy and sell this stuff. And that really, uh, even if they weren't a musician, that left an impression on them and, and helped them understand and sympathize with our customers. You touched on this briefly uh, earlier on that marketplaces obviously aren't anything new. I mean, we have the giants like Amazon and eBay, then you have the local giants as well, uh, Craigslist and Kijiji. Uh, so you guys took the, the market marketplace concept, but for a specific vertical, which in your case was musical instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that this concept of marketplace for X can be applied to pretty much any vertical like fishing, for example, or was there something about musical instruments that made it special? There's probably, you know, something special about every niche, right? If you understand the psychology of that niche, you can execute better on it. Um, so for example, with musical instruments, one psychological thing that a lot of people, non-musicians don't know is that when you go into a guitar center, you can actually haggle the price of an instrument. Um, this is a very common thing in the industry, which is not common in most other stores. Like if you walk into Sears, I don't think you're really uh, haggling the price of a dishwasher necessarily, but with music, it's almost expected. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but you know, by recognizing that, uh, we decided to tailor the site around that concept of making an offer. So we made a really nice process around making offers. And yes, I know eBay has offers, but ours was better, um, <laughs> uh, better designed, you know, um, more friendly. And, um, we tried to really work that concept in. And, and so I'm sure that other verticals that have specific, uh, you know, specific things that people like, uh, to do in that vertical, they, they can implement those on their site. It's also a design issue, right? As being able to have a site that feels like a music store, you know, it's got the vintage uh, kind of uh, vintage guitar colored uh, themes and uh, the instruments that are, you know, you, you open a page and it's just all beautiful things that you want to, to covet, right? If you go to eBay, it's just a bunch of random stuff. Uh, so if you go to a fishing marketplace, I can imagine be, you know, if you're a fisherman, that that could be very exciting as well. So uh, I do think there's some um, value in that and <clears throat> also in the curation. Uh, because as as musicians, we're able to curate the stuff on our site. And we actually spent a lot of human capital. We had people sitting there and watching everything that came in and literally saying like, hey, this is an awesome deal. Or I want to put this in the category of you know vintage synths that are um, really good value. And so we had these curated sets of uh, curated collections of in- instruments that were put together by our employees uh, for our customers so that our customers wouldn't get lost in a sea of inventory, but would really be guided like they would be in a music store uh, to something that was interesting to them. Did you get any sort of pushback on this from investors when you guys were raising money? I mean, you, you guys raised quite a bit. So you, you raised almost 50 million, I believe. At the All time in, yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. And this was from like pretty big firms and pretty famous people like the founders of Groupon and PayPal. Uh, did you have to answer the question of, uh, you know, you guys are competing against Amazon, you're competing against eBay. Uh, how are you guys going to compete with them? Number one, number two, what if, I don't know, eBay, let's say, decides to get into the music industry niche and, and, and try to focus on that? Well, eBay, eBay was in the music industry niche. That's the thing. I think everybody knew this, right? eBay has a giant guitars category. Um, they were way bigger than us. I mean, when we launched, I don't remember their exact listing count, but it was a, a huge problem is nothing was moving. People weren't buying stuff. And uh, there's tons of bad experiences on eBay. And I think all these uh, folks knew that there was a problem here. Uh, the the experience of buying uh, and selling gear was not um, tailored to the musician. And this is a huge market. I think when we started, I don't know the current stats, but when we started, uh, it was something like $7 billion of new gear, just new gear that's being produced every year, right? In the United States. So imagine that there's $7 billion of new instruments entering to the market. And then the recognition that instruments don't, they're not a one-time sale. They have lots and lots of 
life to them, like a guitar. It might have a life of 50 years, 60 years, 100 years, right? It will get sold again and again and again. So recognizing the size of this market, if you take that 7 billion and then you multiply it by the number of times something can get resold, I mean, this is a giant market. Uh, and so there's room for all kinds of competition. I don't think that was really a concern at all. Um, we knew that if we could execute really well, that we could take a giant slice of that market. And I think we did at the end of the day. Yeah, on the topic of defensibility, I think the, the great thing about marketplaces is that you have really strong network effects that kick in, especially once once you get going. Um, but the, on the downside, to, to get these network effects to kick in, uh, you have to overcome the chicken egg problem. And you touched on yes. this earlier on when you when you partnered up with David that he already had uh, the Chicago Mu- Music Exchange uh, physical retail guitar store. Uh, how did you guys overcome this chicken egg problem? Yeah, so this is definitely a big hack that we had, right? We had the store and uh, nobody else did. <laughs> a lot of people started to try to do uh, music marketplaces and they failed because if you come to a site where there's nothing for sale or conversely, you list something and it doesn't sell, well, you're not going to come back, right? There's no point to that. And um, this was really David's insight as uh, he came from the options trading world. And he always talked about liquidity and he always talked about our marketplace as an actual market uh, and a market needs a market maker. Uh, that's somebody that basically closes spreads, right? So in, in the financial world, you have somebody who is willing to uh, you know, buy at a certain price and sell at a certain price. And there's a spread between those two prices where there's no activity. So a market maker comes in and tries to close that spread by you know, lowering the price, raising the price, and basically buying and selling. And so uh, the store effectively acted as a market maker for us, right? So um, as an example, they, first of all, they listed all their guitars for sale on Reverb. Uh, and so when people came to the site, there was stuff there. Uh, but secondly, if somebody came in with their own guitar they wanted to sell, the store would actually buy it off of them. Um, and this didn't have to be a losing proposition for the store because the store could actually buy an instrument, clean it up, take better pictures, make it you know, nicer, uh, rewrite the description, make that better, and relist the same instrument and actually make a profit. Uh, and so create an actual uh, you know, turnover of that instrument and sell it to somebody else. And then that person you know, would play it for a year and they'd come back and sell it and then the process would repeat. And so because of that, that really did uh, essentially create a market. The, the store made the market. And once the market was made uh, and the liquidity was there, that meant that if somebody came to the site, they felt like there was a lot of activity and they felt like if they listed something, it could sell. And of course, you know, as soon as musicians found out, hey, if I list a pedal, it'll sell like in an hour, that's, a, <laughs> that's huge, right? Um, a lot of people have the experience with eBay that they list something and then they wait for a week, you know, and it's just, it's frustrating. You've, you don't want to deal with it. Um, I've listed stuff on, on reverb, like pedals, sometimes in minutes they sell, I list something and it goes in a minute. So I know that very same day, I'm going to go into the, going to the post office and shipping it out. And that was really the trick was to create that liquidity snowball. Uh, and once people saw it, other stores wanted to be a part of it. Other musicians wanted to be a part of it. Everybody wanted to be a part of that liquidity snowball, which just made it even, you know, grow even faster. Did you guys launch reverb, uh, locally only like in Chicago or was it like a US wide launch? It was launched everywhere, but we definitely focused locally for um, our sales efforts. So part of how we grew the initial user base was, of course, we used the store as a marketing engine. So we were able to feed, um, you know, reverb stickers and coupons and stuff like that to existing customers. But also we had uh, salespeople that would be calling up shops that are local and say, hey, you know, you can sell on reverb. We only take three and a half percent. It's a really good deal for you. We'll give you a custom page. Um, will make it feel really custom for you so that you still retain your store's branding, but you have now you know, an online presence that maybe you didn't have before, or maybe you had a webpage that was built in the 90s that never been updated, uh, which is the case for a lot of guitar shops because they have you know, people who are, aren't necessarily tech savvy running them. 
Um, and we were able to, to give them that. And so as we got more and more folks on board, it was easier to then go to other people in other states and other places and say, look, these are the stores that we already have. Um, you might want to join them before <laughs> the party leaves without you. Um, and this made our process um, very successful in terms of converting uh, online uh, shops that had already uh, been selling physically, but didn't necessarily have an online engine and give them that online engine to be able to compete with the big boys. You guys eventually went outside of the US. Uh, and one of the ways of, of scaling for a startup, if, if you're a product market fit, is, is geography, right? So you're, you're taking what works in one city or one country, you're applying it to another. How was it for you guys to enter Europe or to enter other markets outside of the US? Um, it was, you know, every market has its own, I think, unique uh factors, unique psychology of the buyers, right? So in order to go international, it wasn't good enough for us to be in the US and talk to those people. We needed somebody that was really on the ground. And so we ended up hiring people in various geographic regions. Um, I believe our first person was in Europe, and then we had one in Japan. Um, we would hire somebody who was just like a jack of all trades. That person would uh, be the customer service for that uh, geo zone, right? So they'd be speaking a lot of times in Europe, for example, they'd be like three or four languages spoken. Uh, so the person would be servicing customer requests in Italian, French, you know, uh, <laughs> German. Um, and then, you know, they'd also be running uh, a shop out there. So they'd be buying and selling stuff locally just to get their own inventory flowing, that liquidity flowing. So they were really hustling. They were doing so much work. And it was a lot of times one person, two persons um, until it got really spun up. And uh, it was basically the same formula we had played in Chicago, but just done on a much smaller scale out there um, so that the liquidity was bootstrapped. And once it got bootstrapped, um, and of course, you know, there was international aid, people would buy stuff from Europe into the United States, but we really needed somebody in, in that time zone in those languages to, um, to make it feel native. Uh, and so that was a big part of the success. So after you guys started scaling to Europe and outside of the US, uh, in 2019, uh, Etsy came in and acquired Reverb for close to $300 million in cash. Uh, can you talk to us about how this acquisition went down? You know, I actually left in 2018, uh, which was, I left in March of 2018, which was prior to the Etsy talks, as far as I know. Um, and so unfortunately, I can't tell you the details of how it happened. I can tell you though, that Etsy was always an inspiration for Reverb. Uh, from day one, um, you know, our layout, it was a little bit <laughs> Etsy-like. Um, just because, you know, it's not like we were trying to rip them off. We just felt like they did a great job. And uh, we could do something, you know, similar for guitars. Uh, our pricing structure was very Etsy-inspired. They, they had 3.5%. And we looked at it and we said, look, if they're going to be profitable at 3.5%, we can do it with instruments. Um, so a lot of our uh, ethos and a lot of our design and just how we treated customers came from the Etsy um, approach. But uh, we were a different company on the technology side. We were you know, very cloud-oriented. I know that Etsy was actually quite um, big on uh, local infrastructure, which I think you know, eventually migrated off of. But uh, you know, for, for them, I'm sure it was a nice acquisition too to get such a good uh, all-star uh, tech team, which I'm super proud of, my Reverb crew out there. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, again, I, I don't know the details of the acquisition exactly. So that's, that's as much as I can say there. So you left a $275 million company a year before the acquisition. So you must have been pretty confident in what you were leaving it for. Uh, why did you leave? Uh, so around 2016, I had kind of started researching Bitcoin. And um, I think if you'll talk to any of my Reverb people, <laughs> you, they'll tell you that in, uh, when 2018 came around, I was basically just talking about Bitcoin at all times. I was having like lunch and learns with people, giving people uh, lectures about why Bitcoin is important. 
and um, getting all these, all these people excited. And at some point, it just became apparent to me that I was doing two jobs and um, that I just couldn't do both of them successfully. Um, and it also, it felt like, you know, I, I'm a startup person, right? I, I spent all of my time, my last 20 years building startups, uh, being in the first 5, 10, you know, 20 people. And it wasn't until Reverb that I had uh, experienced this like explosive growth, right? Uh, I think the biggest startup that I was a part of was Unix, was my very first one. And it had something like 40 or 50 people at that time. Uh, and then by the time that, uh, so, so following that, all my startups were like, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people. By the time 2018 rolled around Reverb, it wasn't just me and David anymore. It was 150 people uh, across, I don't know how many geographic zones. Uh, you know, we had a development team of probably 30 or 40 people. And it was just really, really big. And, um, you know, I feel like my strength is as a early stage co-founder, somebody who builds that initial tech team, somebody who builds that initial technology vision. And, um, you know, I love product. I love design. I love all of those aspects of being uh, in an early stage business, being able to do customer service. You know, I did everything, right? And when you get to 150 people, it's, a, it's not the same job. You're not really doing those things. You have to, you have to either go super high level and kind of like get really hands off, which is not me. Um, or you can get really deep on something, right? So what ended up happening to me is in uh, 2017, 2018, I started focusing more on infrastructure, which is basically uh, building stuff out to help enable the tech uh, teams across uh, the company to have um, you know, a unified experience as developers. So I started running the infrastructure team, um, which is much smaller, about five people. And that was good, uh, but still it was a very, it was a big company. So I wanted to do something again, that was a startup. That's really my passion. And uh, because I had found Bitcoin in 2016, by the time 2018 rolled around, I had been spending, you know, probably three to four hours a day listening to podcasts, watching videos, reading books. I'd been just saturated with Bitcoin knowledge and I felt like I had enough meat there to go and try to do something in the space, but I didn't know what, but I, you know, I didn't know, I knew that I wasn't going to do it unless I actually left Reverb and forced myself to try something new. And uh, that's why I left. And what is it about Bitcoin that, that makes you so excited? I mean, you, you're not new to this. I mean, you've, you've been through two big paradigm shifts throughout your career, internet and mobile. Uh, what is it about Bitcoin uh, that makes you so confident in it? Well, uh, I think Bitcoin is a, is a widely misunderstood thing. And I, even I'm misunderstood, right? In, in 2016, when I got into it, I really saw it as a technology. Um, I saw the really, very interesting distributed uh, aspect of it. And... Um, you know, for a technology person to look at that and say, wow, this is a very elegantly engineered system. Um, I wonder what else it could do and, and so on, which is the most common thing that happens with people like technology people look at Bitcoin, they say, I wonder what else I could do, uh, which is how you get the whole blockchain explosion. Uh, well, as it turns out, um, nothing in Bitcoin, the pieces of Bitcoin aren't really new. Um, a lot of that technology has been around for 20 years. The innovation of Bitcoin was to put things together in a very interesting way with economics and game theory to create the first. Um, true digital scarcity, which basically turned it into a money. Um, now this gets into very uh, complex and you, know, you got to kind of study economics for a bit to understand why that's the case. But essentially, I mean, all you have to do is look at markets. People are valuing it as money, right? They're, they're willing to pay US dollars or other currencies for it. Uh, once you start understanding Bitcoin as a money, you start to ask like, what properties does it have that make it more interesting than other monies? And this is where you know, I watched this one video, which I would highly recommend to people, called Currency Wars by Andreas Antonopoulos. He was kind of an early uh, Bitcoin evangelist, if you will, going around giving talks. And uh, he talked about, this was in 2016, I believe, he talked about 
how all these countries are experiencing uh, hyperinflation, uh, capital controls. You know, uh, this was at the time when Greece and Cyprus, uh, the bailouts and the bail-ins were happening. People were losing money. The government was taking their money. Uh, there were runs on banks. And he talked about how this problem was going to get worse and is going to go all over the world. And lo and behold, uh, here we are in 2020, and uh, the problem has not gotten better. Um, we have Lebanon. Uh, I don't know if you guys have uh, you know, heard what's going on over there. Banks are being set on fire. Their currency is losing 60% of its value. Um, the United States is printing trillions of dollars uh, you know, a month at this point. Um, so money is really kind of broken. Most people don't understand that money is broken, and it's been broken for a while. And that paradigm shift is happening around us. Money's going digital, um, and it has these kind of flaws to it where uh, banking systems collapse, uh, where people are not allowed to leave their countries with their wealth intact. And once I started learning all, uh, about all of this, I tied it back to my own history. You know, I come from the Soviet Union, right? Um, in the Soviet Union, uh, capital controls were instituted. You couldn't own US dollars, right? You couldn't own foreign currencies. Uh, additionally, the government set prices of everything which you might say that doesn't happen in the United States, but actually it does. Uh, the Federal Reserve sets the price of money. Um, that's, you know, that's interest rates. So uh, a lot of things are happening here, which happened in the Soviet Union. Um, and hopefully we won't get to that point. <laughs> but, um, but a lot of things are kind of scary you know, all over the world where people can't leave their country with their wealth. So I asked my parents, what happened to our money when we left the Soviet Union? And they told me the government was able to exchange $100 per person for us. That's what we got. Uh, we took our rubles and, and they gave us only $100 per person. That's, that's what capital controls means. Uh, capital controls means you can't leave your country. Uh, for most people who aren't willing to leave all their wealth behind, they're completely uh, powerless to leave their countries and they're stuck in these horrible regimes. And once I understood all of that, I understood that Bitcoin was the only uh, true way that we were going to get ourselves out of this problem. Uh, how we were going to free everybody, right? How we're going to free people from oppressive regimes is give them a way to escape these horrible regimes with their wealth intact. And um, when I understood that, I started really, the wheel started turning in my head. Like, what, what do we do to help Bitcoin uh, succeed in this world? And I would say that in 2016 or 2017, maybe it wasn't fully apparent yet that that was you know, happening. Um, but in 2020, I mean, we have Bitcoin being discussed in Congress. We have uh, futures markets and uh, you know, companies like the New York Stock Exchange is a futures market for Bitcoin. Uh, it's very rapidly becoming a financial product uh, in the way that it was envisioned. And eventually, uh, it may well become the next global uh, settlement currency. So because of all of that, I just felt like I had to work on it. So to a lot of people, I think like Bitcoin and blockchain, they're, they're almost synonymous. And what you're saying is that you're, you're much more bullish on Bitcoin, uh, kind of the, even the, probably the, the economical aspect of Bitcoin rather than the technology of blockchain. Um, for somebody that's not really involved and doesn't, doesn't really follow blockchain or, or Bitcoin all that much, uh, from what I remember, I mean, 2017, uh, there was a huge... Uh, spike in like blockchain and in bitcoin in general uh, everybody considered blockchain and bitcoin the greatest thing since uh, sliced <laughs> bread and then a year later yes. uh, people were like rolling their eyes every time they heard blockchain or bitcoin uh where are we at now like what, what, 2020 what's what's going on with bitcoin and blockchain yeah so there was definitely a ma massive hype cycle as we all know the gardner you know hype cycle that's exactly what played out with bitcoin um there was a uh a disconnect between the reality and what was in the media. Um, and this caused a massive price run up in Bitcoin, which went at some point to $20,000 per Bitcoin. Uh, and it caused also a huge amount of capital to be um, invested into projects that looked like they were either Bitcoin competitors or somehow related to Bitcoin. 
And uh, the vast majority of these were either outright scams or completely misunderstood the actual problem that they were trying to solve. And I think that the markets are finally settling down a little bit. Now, I'm not saying this is not going to happen again. It very well could. I don't think that um, people have learned their lesson yet. But a lot of these projects, I mean, there were companies that raised $100 million on a white paper at that time, right? Because people th- looked at Bitcoin, which was you know, $100 billion worth of market cap and said, okay, you know, we'll raise $100 million and build the next Bitcoin. And um, all of these have gone to nearly zero or zero proportional to the $100 million they raised. Um, as it turned out, the invention of Bitcoin was about digital scarcity. And um, all of these sort of competitors and um, you know, projects that were kind of inspired by Bitcoin, they, weren't, they, didn't, they didn't really solve a problem. And uh, there's still tons of capital sloshing around in the system. So a lot of these companies, I mean, they did raise 50 million, 100 million. They still have lots and lots of money. And they went on to invest that money into other companies that all, also built out products, right? Uh, however, none of these have really any product market fit. There's no users. It's just way too early for any of this to actually work. Um, Bitcoin promises us a new money. And uh, right now, that money is in the hands of 0.5% of the world, just like the internet was in the hands of 0.5% of the world in 1993. That's where we were. In 1995, actually, we were in 0.5% of the world. Um, that's where we are with Bitcoin. We're very, very early. And yet the media thinks that it's either going to go you know, to the moon or it's going to go to zero because they're trying to judge it on what's happening today. Well, it's just like trying to judge the internet in 1995. And so many people were wrong about the internet in 1995. Um, <laughs> so this is where we are with Bitcoin. People don't understand what it is. They don't understand its power. Um, and they don't understand uh, where it's going. And what I can tell you is that we are actually in the very, very, very early stages of the cycle uh, where we are creating a new type of money, which has not happened for a long time. I mean, we had gold and we had uh, modern fiat currency, which really only uh, truly started in 1971 when we stopped backing the US dollar with gold. So it's very new. Um, and so we're expecting this kind of new money to take over overnight, but it's not going to happen. It's going to take a long time. Uh, it might take years, decades, uh, possibly 25 years. I don't know. Um, but I'm in it for the long haul. So I think people are starting to recognize that and, and they're looking at it as a savings vehicle now and more of a store of value uh, for the long term. So you're looking at Bitcoin from an investment and economics perspective, and that's where your new company comes in, Swan Bitcoin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what the company's about? Yeah. So as people started recognizing Bitcoin as a savings vehicle, um, we want to we want to encourage the behavior of savings. Uh, one thing that our modern economy does not encourage is savings because we have an inflationary regime, right? Which means our dollars lose value over time. Uh, what that means is that you have two choices of what to do with your dollar. You have to either spend it on goods, which you know, we have a lot of frivolous uh, spending, a lot of consumerism, um, or you invest it into something risky, right? Because you have to make a return that outpaces inflation. And so people put it into the stock market and, you know, then, then the COVID virus hits and then you see what happens, right? Um, the, that's not what um, Bitcoiners believe is the right way to you know, have an economy. Uh, we believe in savings, which is more of an Austrian economics. Uh, there's a school of thought called Austrian economics, which is a, a little bit more oriented around savings and the scarcity of money. And the idea there is instead of like taking loans to build something, you save, right? And once you have the capital saved, then you can invest it in something that's really, really worthwhile. And that thing that's worthwhile has to be uh, really worthwhile because otherwise your savings, you're just going to hold on to it. Uh, so Bitcoin in that sense, it, it competes with modern money because it's not inflationary. So it's, there's only 21 million Bitcoins. You can't create any more of them. And so we want people to start actually doing this new behavior of saving, which they've forgotten how to do. Nobody knows how to save anymore. 
companies don't know how to save. That's why they're all getting bailed out by the government now. Uh, people certainly don't know how to save. That's why they're all getting stimulus checks. So um, Bitcoin actually encourages savings, and that's why Swan was built. And Swan is a very simple concept. You connect your bank account, and then every week or every paycheck or every month, we withdraw a certain amount. Could use, it could be as little as $5. And then we convert that to Bitcoin for you. And um, if you want to keep it on our platform, you can. We have a licensed and regulated uh, custodian, which is essentially like a bank that holds on to your Bitcoin. Uh, or if you want to take it into your own custody, which is to say to bring it into your own wallet, um, you can do that. And uh, we have an automated way to withdraw the Bitcoin back into a Bitcoin wallet. And we have all kinds of educational resources to help you with all of that, as well as, of course, a great customer service team that's there to hold your hand. The focus on Swan versus somebody like Coinbase, for example, is that you guys are not the the core focus here is not to provide the the quickest or the uh, the quickest way for people to buy Bitcoin or for them to be able to buy it at the lowest uh, price possible. The the idea here is sort of this passive investment mechanism, right? So the people are investing mm-hmm. in the in the long haul. They're not. It doesn't really matter if they buy it at eight thousand uh, price or five thousand or ten thousand. The idea is that right. In, in over the in the next let's say ten years, uh, Bitcoin is going to be um, worth much much more. Regardless, and it's, it's not really going to matter if it, the price that you right. bought it at. Uh, is that yeah? Kind that's, of the- that's that's definitely a p- part of it. I think Coinbase basically was what Swan was. If you look at it, twenty thirteen, Coinbase was a Bitcoin on ramp, and it did a pretty good job there. Uh, certainly, how I got my coins back in twenty thirteen as well. Um, but Coinbase and other uh, let's call them cryptocurrency exchanges. They, they sort of morphed over time, right? As, as new coins came around, they became essentially trading platforms. And so now the majority of their business comes from trading. And so their incentive when somebody new comes on board is not to sell them Bitcoin. It's to actually sell them the idea that they should trade cryptocurrencies and try to make money. And um, I will tell you that that is a losing trade for like 99% of people. Uh, if you don't know how to day trade stocks and stock options, you should absolutely not touch cryptocurrency trading. Because unlike stocks and stock options, which maybe have some fundamental value, uh, 99.9% of cryptocurrencies have zero fundamental value. So what you're really trading against is the psychology of other people. And you're trading speculative bubbles. And on the other side of that trade are professional traders. And you know what they're doing? They're trading to get more Bitcoin. That's what all professional traders in crypto are doing. They're all accumulating Bitcoin. So um, people who are new to the space and they go to Coinbase, they get hit with a screen that says, here are 30 different coins and we'll, t- we'll pay you to learn about them. They're literally paying people to become traders so that they lose their money, which is absolutely horrible. And I would never send my family or friends to Coinbase. I used to do it. Um, I won't do it anymore. It's just absolutely, uh, it's absolutely this, um, it's, it's a disservice to new people into, into Bitcoin. And that's why we built Swan, because we want to have a Bitcoin only on-ramp. Um, it's about saving a new type of money. It's, this money is um, potentially your only protection from inflation. It's potentially your only ticket out of a broken country. Um, that's why we're doing Bitcoin. That's why we're doing Swan. Uh, and I don't want people trading it for garbage uh, because that's what people do. They trade it for garbage and then, and then they're very sad because they've lost a lot of money. You're playing the long game. Um, what do you think the price of Bitcoin is going to be in, in, let's say, 10, 20 years? I know it's a wild speculation. Oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I really don't know. Uh, I think we're going a lot higher. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things that we could look at, right? Um, one is gold. So a lot of people who uh, who understand gold as a monetary asset. Uh, gold is worth about eight or nine uh, trillion dollars. Uh, that's like the, the sum of all gold in the world. Now, a lot of people don't understand gold. They say, okay, gold is used for dentistry or, or electronics or you know, a jewelry. But the reality is that those uses of gold are about 10% of its value. The majority of gold's value is what we call monetary premium, which is essentially the extra money people pay just because it's scarce. 
uh, most gold in the world is stored in vaults and held you know, underground in Fort Knox or other places like that. It's not being used for dentistry. Um, and so if gold is eight or $9 trillion, well, Bitcoin right now is about $160 billion, let's say. So that's a 50X upside just to get to the side of gold. Um, then we have to recognize that people also store value in other things, right? Real estate is an example. Uh, how many apartments in London and New York are sitting empty, uh, being used by billionaires to like, they literally buy a $50 million condo just because they know they can resell it later. Um, so a lot of things that we have in life, uh, paintings, offshore bank accounts, um, you know, houses, these things have store of value properties. And I highly recommend a book called uh, Why Buy Bitcoin uh, by Andy Edstrom, who's also an investor in Swan. Uh, he, he does a great job explaining this, that, that all things in life have some amount of value because of their use value and some amount of value because of their monetary premium, because they're scarce or, or whatever. Um, so if you look at that whole market, I mean, there's hundreds of trillions of dollars of, of scarce store of value uh, products. So if any of that value at all flows into Bitcoin, yeah, we're going a lot higher. Uh, now, will it happen in 10 years? I don't know. It might happen in 25 years. It might take my kids to grow old enough to become uh, accumulators of Bitcoin for this to happen. Uh, because there is a cultural component to it. People are not ready to let go of their old money yet. Uh, so I won't speculate on price in 10 years. I will tell you, though, that in 25 years, I'm very confident that there's at least a 50x coming. Where are you, where are you guys at as a company, Swan? Are you guys live? Have you launched? Yeah, we launched in, uh, at the end of March. So it's been just over, where, where are we here? I don't even know what day of the week it is. <laughs> it's been about a month and a half, let's say. Um, and we actually just crossed $2 million in annualized Bitcoin sales, which is very exciting for us. Wow. Uh, basically, the way that we look at it is people sign up for a weekly or monthly plan. And so if you just play that out to a year, because we expect most people to stick with us for at least a year, if not longer, um, then that's $2 million annualized. So it's moving along very nicely. Um, and you know, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll, uh, we'll 10x that at least. How have you guys been impacted by the COVID thing? Uh, it's May 5th, by the way, because I don't know when this episode is going to launch, but just for people. May 5th. <laughs> yeah, COVID, it was interesting. We launched essentially, we launched on March 23rd, which was a, a really bad day and a really bad week for Bitcoin in general and, and global markets. Um, everything was down a lot. And uh, we're, we're like coming out and announcing our launch on Twitter. Uh, we kind of soft launched to you know uh, the Bitcoin crowd, which generally lives on Twitter. And um, we had a lot of uptake. You know, a lot of people signed up right, right away that day. And um, what we have seen is that despite that people are sometimes losing jobs in this economy, um, a lot of people are starting to ask questions about money, which they've never asked before. They might see the news about uh, that the Fed is borrowing $3 trillion, or sorry, not the Fed, but the, gov the government, the treasury is going to you know, uh, borrow $3 trillion to finance all these different programs that they're doing to kind of stimulate the economy. And they're starting to ask, like, well, if they can just get three trillion out of thin air, then why why are we paying taxes? Like, why, how does money even work? How does any of this work? Um, and because of that, people are starting to uh, find Bitcoin because usually when you ask the question of how does money work, you end up with, well, what are other options like besides the current modern you know monetary system, and you end up with Bitcoin. So we are seeing an influx of people who are new to Bitcoin who have heard about it for you know a few years because it's been in the media but they've never really considered it seriously as part of their portfolio until now. Um, and as they're seeing everything in the, in, you know, we call this the everything bubble, what's happening now in the world, everything is deflating. Um, we had 10 years of, of, uh, of monetary stimulus. I mean, we went into, from 2008 till now, we quadrupled our base money supply. I don't think most people understand that. Um, well, we <laughs> look at the Fed's balance sheet. So um, 
these things have been happening in under people's noses and they don't understand. And so now that they're seeing the results of what happens when you pump a stock market for 10 years, well, they're, they're thinking about other options. So we are seeing a good influx of people coming into Bitcoin. Awesome. Awesome. And I certainly hope that your predictions for Bitcoin uh, and the prices of Bitcoin going up in the long term um, are going to come out to be true. At least I think a lot of the uh, customers of Swan are, are going <laughs> to end up thanking you. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, Jan. Uh, wishing you all the best with Swan. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.